I hope you've been enjoying the distribution. I want to hear from you. Please go to the link in the show description to provide your feedback on the topics and guests you would like to hear from. I appreciate your time and hope to keep giving you more of the conversations you enjoy. I'm Brandon Sedloff, Managing Director at Juniper Square, and you're listening to The Distribution by Juniper Square. Join us as we sit down with experts from commercial real estate, venture capital, and private equity to discuss trends in technology, fundraising, and private markets. We'll cover this and much more. In 2019, Green Oak Real Estate merged with Bentel Kennedy to create Bentel Green Oak, now known as BGO, a global real estate investment management advisor with approximately $83 billion of assets under management. On today's episode of The Distribution, I sit down with co-CEO Sonny Kelsey, who founded Green Oak Real Estate in 2010. Prior to Green Oak, Sonny was the global co-head of Morgan Stanley's real estate investing business and president of Morgan Stanley Real Estate Funds. Sonny has also been called one of the 30 most influential people in private equity real estate globally. On today's episode, we discuss Sonny's career and the lessons he's learned through multiple cycles, the current market fundamentals, as well as green shoots that BGO is seeing in Asian real estate, as well as globally in distribution, and how BGO is tackling some of the most pressing issues around DEI and sustainability. I always enjoy my conversation with Sonny because they're both approachable and candid. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I did recording. Let's get into it. Sonny, thanks for joining me. Hey, Brandon. Thanks so much for the opportunity. It's good to be here. Let's start by having you share with our audience a little bit about yourself and your journey in commercial real estate. You're a veteran of the industry. Maybe take us back to the beginning. How did you get into the industry and then walk us through kind of your career? Yeah, I had a little bit of a roundabout way in. And by the way, it's it's always the first question I always ask everyone as well, because I'm always curious. You know, my background a little bit, you know, my family's originally from India and my dad is a retired nuclear engineer and we immigrated to the US when I was three years old. Grew up in Tennessee. And, you know, after university, after I went to college, which Georgetown, which I brag about all the time, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And I got a job working on Wall Street. And it was my first job was in the mergers and acquisitions department. And I did that for a year and I didn't really like it that much. Someone says, someone I know who says it tongue in cheek, who's a big M&A banker, says, yeah, all the jerks on Wall Street wind up in (laughs) M&A. So I had an opportunity my second year out of school to join the real estate group at Morgan Stanley. And I, I candidly did it because it was a, you know, it was a great firm. I didn't know anything about this sector. I thought I was only going to do it for a year or two and then go off to business school anyway, so it wouldn't matter. And so I did it. And you know, I really liked the people I met in the group. A number of them are still my friends to this day. And that's how I got in. And I just thought, okay, I'm going to do this for a year or two. That was 1991. And so here we are 32 years later, and I'm still in the industry. And I look, I, I can, that's a shorter version of the story. I can also tell a longer version, but I always tell it because I think it's important for people to realize that whether it's real estate or anything else, you don't have to have a grand plan for everything it is you want to do in your life. And that actually sometimes being open-minded and saying yes to something is, you know, could lead to some opportunities that you may not have otherwise thought would might come your way. Look, the other thing I've really liked about the industry and it's probably kept me in it for so long is that I've, I've had the opportunity to work in six countries. I'm trying to think six countries around the world doing this. And, you know, I think the, the one thing I will say about real estate is it will definitely still be here in 100 years. People are still going to need the asset class. And so I think that's one of the reasons, none of which I knew and back in 1991 when I said, yes, I'll do this because it's better than the thing I was doing. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's funny how that works. But, you know, you spent you mentioned you lived in six countries. You know, you spent a considerable amount of time at Morgan Stanley before starting, you know, Green Oak, which was the predecessor company to, you know, BGO or Bentall Green Oak. Talk us through kind of the journey at Morgan Stanley, because a lot of people do start in the traditional investment banking route and want to rise up. What did that look like for you? You know, especially given, you know, the times were, were different when you entered the industry. Yeah, so I'll start it actually by saying if you come around to our offices, a lot of our offices around the world, they have these they have one of my favorite slogans up everywhere, which is start with the S. And I I would say that that slogan, which I didn't really think about until after the fact, was really how I re- I thought about my career at Morgan Stanley. It was awesome. I was there for 18 years and, you know, I really appreciated everything I got. You know, I got to learn from there all the experiences I had, all the awesome people I met. But one of the things I really, you know, I tried to do every day is just be really open-minded, open-minded about what I worked on, who I worked on it with. You know, when the when the first opportunity came up, I started in New York. An opportunity came up to go work on the West Coast. I said yes. You know, I mean, I didn't know a lot about the West Coast. I ended up living in LA for two years, which was kind of cool. And you know, for me, it just it was a little bit of a sense of adventure. You know, after that came Europe, after that came Australia, then Hong Kong, then Japan. And so I think that, you know, as a broader comment, I would say that, look, I think in terms of just the career itself and working at a big bank like that, the the important thing to me there was, you know, who do you, who do you align yourself with? Who do you, you know, who do you, who are the people that you want to work with? Who are the people that you want to learn from? There are certain things that are in your control, right? You So <laughs> make sure you have a good relationship with the staffer and the people that are staffing deals. That's important. But there are certain, you know, that's really not in your control. What is in your control is your attitude and you know how hard you work and just bringing a degree of enthusiasm to things every day. And I look, I've always had this sense of curiosity and whether it was the 23-year-old me or the 55-year-old me, you know, that sense of curiosity has always been there. And so that was it. Look, I think Wall Street's a tough environment. A lot of these environments are tough environments. I'd say the big asset managers nowadays, some of them are also pretty tough environments. And I think that if you can try to focus on what matters and try not to get caught up in all the politics and the gossip around the, I don't know if people gossip around water coolers or not anymore, but you know, that, you know, that kind of stuff. And, as a, and instead of that, just focus on, you know, the people you want to work with, the kind of deals that you want to work on. Saying yes to things and being open-minded. Yeah, at least for me, that was a little bit of a formula for success and longevity. Yeah, I love that. Start with the yes. I think that's super powerful. And candidly, in my own journey, it's what enabled me to spend some time in Asia as well. So I can understand the impact of that. So, you know, over the course of your career, 30 some odd years, you mentioned, you know, the the industry has had, you know, it's it's high highs and low lows. And arguably we're recording this in June of 2023. We're in a low period. I don't know if it's the lowest of lows, but certainly a low period. Talk to me a little bit about kind of the impact that the prior downturns, you know, whether it's the dot-com bust and the GFC or however you think of kind of the ebbs and flows have had on your career and kind of what did you learn, you know, from each of these kind of pivotal pivotal moments in the industry? Yeah, I think, look, I think it's one of these things that it, you know, there are a lot of things. I'm a you know parent. I have a 23-year-old son, a 20-year-old daughter. And there are things I wish I could just say to them and they would learn, but I know they're going to have to experience it for themselves, just like my parents knew with me and my sister. And I think one of the things I've just learned over time is these are all cycles and they're natural. 
right? The, the cycles are going to happen, you know. So in 33 years, I've lost track of how many cycles we've been through up and down. But what almost what I tell what Brandon, what always happens is things that go up come down, and things that go down come back up. And maybe it looks different, maybe the shape is different, the pace is different, the duration, all of that could be different. But cycles, the one thing I guarantee you is there's going to be another cycle. There'll be another up cycle after this. There'll be another down cycle after that. And it makes you a little bit more sanguine over time. You know, I think that the causes of them all are very different. The drivers are different. They're what comes, you know, who the winners and losers are coming out of it are also different. But if you, if you, Try to think about your business and you try to think about what you're doing and you try to instead of look, if you're always all in every time, it's a that's a hard way to have a long career. <laughs> on the other end of the spectrum, if you're never willing to sit at the table and put any chips on the table, you're you know, you're also not gonna have much of a career. So that finding that balance in the middle, look, it takes time. So I, I would just say I'm more balanced today than I was 20 years ago. If I'm still kicking 20 years from now, I think I'll be even more balanced then than I am now. But I think that's a little bit of a human that's – that's a statement that probably apply to all of us. Absolutely. And we'll talk a little bit more about where we are today as we progress in the conversation. T- talk us through the journey to get to what is today BGO. So you left Morgan Stanley, then what? Yeah, well, first of all, leaving Morgan Stanley is a very charitable way to say it. You know, after 18 years there, you know, I happened to be the person that was in charge when the GFC hit. And I'm a big believer in accountability and responsibility. And, you know, I ended up myself and a couple of others ended up, you know, kind of taking the fall for, you know, a difficult market, a very difficult market environment and downturn. And so I found myself, you know, at 41 years old, you know, trying to figure out what I wanted to do next with life. The good news is I had, you know, almost 20, not quite, but almost 20 years of experience and made some money. So I didn't have to worry about what I was going to do tomorrow or the day after and candidly had some capital to think about what to do from that point forward. I also, fortunately, unfortunately, had a year. <laughs> There's one year and I'll compete. And, and I'm glad about that, Brandon, because in hindsight, that gave me a lot of time to kind of think about what I wanted to do and not rush into anything and also who I wanted to do it with. So I, in that year, thought about a lot of different things. And the thing I kept coming back to is I was much more focused on who I did it with than I was and specifically what it was. And, you know, fortunately for me and a, a, a couple of my longstanding colleagues, you know, from Morgan Stanley, you know, John Carafield and Fred Schmidt also wanted to do something more entrepreneurial. You know, John had already retired from Morgan Stanley. Fred, you know, was ready to leave as soon as he knew what, what the opportunity might be. And then a number of our other former partners joined us as well. And I think that was, you know, th- I would I would say that confluence of events of all those people kind of post-GFC thinking, maybe I want to do something different and we want to do it together was really the driver more than anything else. And so that would look, I mean, whether that was, you know, I, I would say, I'm sure we had a business plan. I'm sure we had a lot of other things at the time. <laughs> I can't remember. It was 13 years ago now since we launched. But, you know, the biggest thing I do remember then and I still appreciate today is who I did it with and who the journey, you know, who, who's been on the journey, you know, together with us. And so when you set up Green Oak, what was the size and scale? Was it the three three of you and a handful of other partners that came along or what did that look like in the early days? So I, I mentioned the aforementioned non-compete, 365 days. On day 366, about 20 of our former Morgan's only colleagues joined us in New York, London, and Tokyo. 
And, you know, I'd say, you know, first 25 people, 40 of the first 50 people, 60 or 70 of the first 100 people came from Morgan Stanley, which didn't make me very popular over there. <laughs> but, um, you know, those early days, we started with a little bit of a bang. We started with New York, London, and Tokyo. I would not advise you to pick the three most expensive cities in the world and <laughs> open offices and start from that way. But that's how we started. But a little bit of it is where we came from. You know, we ran, we helped run this big global business, you know, with 100 billion of assets in 30 countries. So the notion of having people in three countries and trying to figure that out maybe probably wasn't as daunting to us as it should have been at the time. You know, so we started with that. And we just built the business organically initially, you know, going from there. But the key thing we had is we had knew each other well and we were, you know, kind of on the same page and, you know, excited about the opportunity to do this together. And when did Bentall Kennedy come into the mix as part of the, was it a merger? Is that how, is that the right way to think about it with, with Green Oak? Yeah, so you know, we continued to so we launched in 2010 and we grew the business. It was the first few years were a real grind. It was slow. You know, look, it was coming out of the GFC. It was a really difficult time to raise money. It was also a really hard time to start a new firm. You know, I think investors, appropriately so, who had been you know had a tough experience during the GFC, were cautious. So we, the first few years were it just it took a long time. You know, at the end of year one, we had $100 million under management. At the end of year two, we had $400 million under management. And then it really started taking off after that. So seven years in, you know, we found ourselves with about $10 billion under management. And we started getting phone calls. And we got phone calls from the kind of people that like to buy minority stakes in companies. You know, there are a lot of them out there. So we got calls from them. We talked to them. And then we got a phone call from a big household name asset management company that's not uh, an A player, if you will, in real estate. And they really wanted to do something much more significant in real estate. You know, they were, they didn't want to do just a minority stake. They wanted to have a control position. And a little bit because of who they are and kind of, you know, what they represent, I said, I said I would spend the time and we spent the time and talked to them and we probably spent a few months kind of figuring out it probably wasn't the right fit for us or, you know, from a, from a lot of different perspectives, but including being able to keep some degree of independence. And then it was after all that, that was a one-year process. It was after all of that, that we then got a phone call from Bentall Kennedy. Amy Price, who was the president of Bentall, now the president of BGO. I'd known Amy since 1993 for Morgan Stanley. We worked together for a number of years there. She had left Morgan Stanley after, you know, me and John and others left, left Morgan Stanley and had joined Bentall as the heir apparent. She knew our business well. Her husband and I are good friends. And I think she just, and she may have picked up in the market that maybe people were calling us. So she called and said, hey, I got this crazy idea. Maybe we should put the businesses together. So we then then spent a year dating each other before we got married to really just see, you know, because look, it's one thing to do a financial transaction. It's other than the merge. You know, mergers are much more complicated because you're creating a partnership and it's a going concern. You're not buying something. You're not selling something. And then, you know, Sun Life owned 100% of Bentall. And so we had to really understand that and how that would all work. So, you know, that was the driver of it. I would say, look, the driver was back to my first point. It's people, right? Amy knew us really well. She knew that the culture would work. You know, we had the time to get to know each other. We got had time, had the chance to get to know the Sun Life people who've been, who've been awesome, candidly. And that's how it all came together. But I would say Brandon kind of start to finish. By the time we closed, it's probably a two and a half year process. The, the starting of when people started calling us saying, hey, would you be open to selling a 25% stake? all the way through to actually closing, you know, with Bentall is two and a half years. 
which is probably a good thing because I think it's it's worked out pretty well. But I think all that time probably is part of the reason. So when you had, you know, 400 million, 100 million to 400 million in the early days of Green Oak, I think about a lot of the conversations I have with smaller managers today who are kind of at a similar size, some of whom have aspirations to become larger, some of whom don't. Were you oriented towards the former Morgan Stanley mindset of size and scale and global? Or, you know, you obviously had the global part down because you opened offices at launch. Like, how were you thinking about AUM growth in terms of your strategy in the early days? Everything is relative in life, right? So when you manage a $100 billion business in 30 countries, a lot of things can seem small compared to that. And, you know, I think a lot of us, I'll speak for myself, I never thought we'd ever work for a big company again. I was really happy about that. You know, after working at a big company for a long time and candidly not being very happy with how it ended, you know, I, I like the fact that we had the smaller business and, you know, year three was a billion. And that's kind of when we had that inflection point. But even then, it was really concentrated on a few cities. We were investing a lot in you know, New York and L.A., and we are investing a lot mostly in London, and then Tokyo, maybe a little bit in Osaka. So you know that we were really concentrating on what we're doing. And the performance was good. Those, those early, early funds we did, did it turned out really well, so we were able to raise bigger funds. And then you know, after a couple of years, we thought there was a really interesting opportunity to be a lender in Europe where you know, there were a lot of debt, private debt vehicles in the U.S., but not a lot in Europe, and had an opportunity to work together with a team that we knew really well that they had been together for a long time. So even though they weren't with us at Morgan Stanley, they had worked together. And so a lot of the same things that, we, by the way, they're all still here and all still together, which is awesome. So it was really not a, you know, we didn't have a model or five-year business plan where we said, okay, we're going to be at this by this year, we're going to be this by this year, we're going to be in 10 countries. It wasn't that way. It was a little bit more opportunistic as we went. Now, I will say this. I think that if I think for an organization to thrive, there has to be some degree of growth because even if you as the founders and the leadership are prepared, are, are happy to have it be smaller and grow at a slower pace, it's hard to attract and retain the best people. If You might be able to attract them, but it's hard to retain the best people, especially the younger people who really rely on that growth for their wealth creation and for their excitement and enjoyment and learning, et cetera. You know, as I said here today, with 80 plus billion dollars under management, I you know we ended up doing the thing I never thought we would do, which is become a big global company again. I'd say probably what feels a little bit different to me this time around on it is it's ours, it's not someone else's. You know, it's our company. We shape it. We drive what it is, and you know we still run it very much like a small business, small firm. Now, what does that mean practically speaking? <laughs> we that doesn't mean we don't have all the checks and balances and all the controls that we need, but we're still it's very flat. You know, John and I, you know, who are co-CEOs are very, very, very involved in the business on a day-to-day basis. So is Amy, who's president. We have a lot of people that own equity in the company, probably have close to 100 equity owners in the business. Right? So Sun Life owns 51%, the other 49% they don't own. So, you know, I think that's been part of it. So I just think, look, I, I was aspirational that the business would be bigger next year than it was this year. But it wasn't like we had a target you know, back in those days where we like, like, we have to be here, we have to be there. At this point now at our scale, it's a little bit less about targets and it's more about what are the opportunities out there and can we do, can we, you know, can we achieve those? Are we, are they within our grasp of like being able to be good at it? Cause I'm, you know, what I've seen people do really wrong a lot in my career, we've done, we've been guilty of it too in the last 30 plus years. 
it was just doing something for the sake of doing it without actually being able to look yourself in the mirror and say, do we really have an expertise, a differentiated expertise here or not? So with that backdrop, you know, I think you have what, 20, you're in 28 cities now, 14 countries, you know, 80 billion of assets, you know, a dozen-ish investment strategies. Does that sound right from a headline perspective? Sounds about right. Yeah, sounds about right. Yeah. So when you think about doing the things that you're really good at, you know, if you look at the current appetite for, you know, investor demand and capital raising, you know, obviously we've all read the headlines and, you know, we know that the markets are fairly frozen here in 2023, in the middle of 2023. And one of the trends that we've seen is around, you know, LPs wanting to consolidate relationships with fewer and fewer GPs. How do you think about kind of the unified vision of BGO going forward as you go out and, you know, talk to the investment community and, you know, what is the kind of unique or competitive advantage that you all have with the platform that you've built today? Well, I think, you know, when I got asked when we were considering the merger, for example, you know, one of the things that I was very much on my mind is I thought what I'd seen during the, after the GFC, like lead up to the GFC, there are a number of bigger firms, you know, some of those firms that were bigger pre-GFC stayed, like with Blackstone and Brookfield. But then they got a lot bigger, you know. And I heard some investors saying, you know, in 09, 010, hey, look, we're not going to invest in funds anymore. We're going to do more ourselves, et cetera, et cetera. And some of that was true. And then they just gave more money to the big guys too, right? And look, a lot of cases, a lot of them had good performance. So I understand that. And I think you, you know, I think if you, if a manager delivers good performance to you, I think, you know, yeah, I think you have to consider continuing to invest with them. At least I would hope so, um, that you would consider that. But, you know, we saw that trend before the GFC, but then we saw it accelerate significantly post GFC. So it was okay to continue to be a boutique if you're a Southeast multifamily investor, that's what you do and stay in that box. You could do that really well. And maybe it, you know, you're doing value add opportunistic. Maybe you can do a little bit of core plus with that, but you kind of stay in your box. And I think that that, you know, you can, you can have a long-term business and be really successful doing that. We thought it was getting harder to be in the middle, to be in the middle, to be a mid cap for, you know, mid size, you know, you know, I don't know what mid size is anymore, 10 billion, 15 billion, 20 billion, all the numbers have gotten bigger, right? So, you know, we got a we got one firm out there just raised a thirty billion dollar one fund. So I think our view was investors on the scale when you get in the middle, that's where you're gonna have to have a harder time differentiating yourself. And so our view was it could make a lot of sense to get bigger and, and be more diversified. And that's what the merger gave us the ability to do. You know, what Bentall did really well was had long standing open end core funds in the US and Canada which we didn't have and which are really hard to start from scratch. And, you know, when we came together, we were able to do some stuff together, which has really helped the performance of those two funds. And, you know, they are now both really strong performers, partly, you know, new management teams in both, who've both done a great job, but also new strategy in terms of what they're focused on. So I would just say, look, it was absolutely our intention to try to be one of those firms that would be able to wind up on a short list for investors to consider when they decided to go to fewer managers. And then the challenge for us, and I think for everyone, is to not just fill every box on the page just because they're out there to be filled. Right? If you think about geographies and, and strategies, to try to fill every box because when you do that, and you know, if I think if you ask me what I think went wrong a little bit with Morgan Stanley's, we just grew too fast geographically and product-wise in a too short a period of time. And we've really tried hard to resist that here. 
that is not to say we've had perfect performance, but I think that that is a key thing. So look, I'll give you a really good example. U.S. lending. You know, we manage Sun Life's general accounts, so we are, you know, Bantol Kennedy was, and now BGO is. You know, we're the manager that manages their general account lending in the U.S., but we did not have a value-add higher return lending strategy in the U.S. That was the insurance company core. And we didn't launch it till last year, and we didn't actually have a first close until last December, right? And we waited for a market opportunity where we said, okay, we could be one of 20 people, 30, 100 people doing this three years ago. But let's actually be one of the few who's doing it now with no legacy issues, a good team that we brought in from externally, so we don't have to worry about any legacy problems. We got dry powder to take advantage of the dislocation in the market now. So that's an example, Brandon, of like, you know, we could have tried to do it three years ago. Maybe we would have been successful. I think we'll be more successful if we do it now. And then, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, if we're doing certain things that are not scaling or whatever, you know, I think we're... Maybe in our old age, we're more willing to kind of just pull the re- pull the Band-Aid off at times and just say, we're not going to do this anymore, right? Because if it's not scalable and if it's not differentiated, it's kind of hard to, to your question to be able to go to someone and say, why pick us? If you look back over the course of your career, I mean, what do you think investors are looking for now in this kind of current market environment? And maybe your answers are not looking for anything, but you can enlighten us. Like, what are they looking for now that's different than what they were focused on, you know, coming out of, you know, the global financial crisis, GFC, and, and you know, in, in 2010 and, and other kind of, you know, trough periods? Well, I think this is, look, every downturn is different. Right. And this one's no different. <laughs> this one is no different in how it's different. So I think what investors are trying to assess right now is just very simplistic, right? I, I say in 20, and it's even more topical after this last weekend, in, two, in 2022, I think we had a black swan event and a gray swan event. The black swan event was Russia invading the Ukraine, right? That's why I say it's topical this weekend, given, given what's going on there. But, you know, black swan is, you know, Basically, no one saw that coming, right? And it happened. The gray swan event was what the what the central banks did, especially the Fed, you know, to go effectively from zero interest rates to five percent in a year, in one month, in one year, and with the pace at which they did it. Look, the forward curve, everyone knew rates were going to go up. You know, the Fed was talking about fighting inflation, and they, you know, obviously originally thought it they. They thought it was transitory, a word that they probably wish they never said, and it ended up not being transitory. And so what they had to do, and that caught a lot of people flat-footed, caught a lot of regional banks flat-footed, and we've seen what happened there. It's caught a lot of people flat-footed, but it's also it's also caught the what I'll call the standard 60-40 model of investing in equities and, and fixed income flat-footed, because in 2022, for the first time, and I think it's like a crazy time, year, like 50 or 60 years, both the equity market and the bond market were both more, off more than 10% at the same time. And, you know, usually equities go up, bonds go down, vice versa, right? There's an inverse relationship between these two, and it's a little bit of a natural hedge, and that went out the window. So longer answer that I'm sure they do bank for, but that's what's on investors' minds, right? Because they've had to contend with that. You know, it's it, when they when this isn't the first time they've talked about the denominator effect, but you know, when their two biggest asset classes of investment are down, both equities and debt, then you know the denominator gets hit that much harder. And you know, at a time too where commercial real estate is very much in the center of the storm here because of what's happened to rates, what's happened to office, especially is the biggest asset class in that. So you know, people are worried about the denominator, but they're also worried about what the value of that numerator is. 
you know, what's going on? What are what are real asset values right now? And if you had to sell something, it's not a pretty time to be a seller, especially if it's anything other than maybe industrial. So it's a hard time to sell right now. So all those factors are what are in their head. And I think, you know, unless someone's been in their career, some of our young people probably assume I was working in the early 80s when last time we had a high interest rate environment. You know, I was 12 years old in 1980, <laughs> so I wasn't working. So I think that, you know, this is new for most people, right? In a higher inflationary environment, therefore, this rate environment we're in is different. And I think that is what's taking so long for everyone, ourselves included, to kind of sort out. You don't want to be too early. You know, my background in, in real estate is distress, and I'm very comfortable investing in markets with dislocation. But, you know, you want to, you have to be careful not to be too early. And you have to be careful about value traps because some of what's going on right now might be secular and not just cyclical, right? If it's cyclical, then you know it's going to come back in some way. If it's secular, then you got to say, okay, maybe it's going to come back or maybe it's not, or maybe it's going to come back differently. So all those things are what's on people's minds. If investors are on the sideline and portfolio composition is changing, what are some of the things that you guys can do to help kind of maintain and nurture? And you know, how, how do you how do you keep those relationships in a period where not a lot of transactional activity is happening? Yeah, I think that's when you differentiate those relationships. Right? Just being in touch with them regularly. You you know, if you have an existing partnership with them, then you probably already manage investments for them. I think it's more important now than ever to be communicating that, reporting on that. You know, so I think using this as a time period where you differentiate yourself on, you know, what are you doing as an asset manager? What are you doing in terms of managing the assets? What are you doing from a risk management perspective? You know, doing a great job on reporting and being, you know, on responsiveness, et cetera. Because, you know, you're right. In a typical market environment, you're out investing. You're talking about your investments. You're out going to them, asking them for more money for those investments, right? The cadence is different at a time like this. But I could argue you have a much bigger ability to differentiate yourself at a time like this. Yeah. So let's switch gears, talk about the market. I mean, you talked a little bit about secular versus cyclical and some of the shifts going on. But, you know, you, you have a global perspective. You've been operating globally for a long time. You now have scale. How would you describe the current state of affairs to somebody who, you know, is only reading the headlines and maybe at arm's length from what's actually happening? You've got a bunch of different macro factors that are all happening at the same time, right? So we talked about rates. Let's talk about inflation. Let's talk about inflation is what's driving the rate environment. So you got that going on. You've got regional stuff going on, right? So you've got geopolitical concerns. There's a war going on in Europe. You've got more tension than there's been in 50 years between the U.S. and China, not to mention other you know, geopolitical tensions. We got that, that going on. You've got, and then from a pure real estate perspective, you know, I, I think it's all technological disruption, but you've got technology and the disruption is causing the real estate accelerating. So what are examples? So this one's already been going on for a while, right? But the growth of industrial has been at the expense of retail, right? People are still shopping. They're just using their 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 smartphone as opposed to you know necessarily going to going to a store physically, but that's been going on for ten years. But that hasn't slowed down, right? What what we we made a big investment in cold storage, which is a type of industrial distribution. We did that before the pandemic and, and accelerated it during the pandemic because we just thought people were going to shop online, you know, shop for groceries more online. 
and then not to mention pharmaceuticals and the, you know especially at a time we got a global pandemic you got vaccines around et cetera et cetera so you know that's technological disruption obviously there's a ton that's going on with prop tech your guys you guys included you know in terms of just what that's doing from a disruption standpoint you know on the multi, on the on the residential side you know single family rental market could not exist without technology you know, I think it was a really interesting idea and Blackstone and others were really smart to jump on it after the GFC, but the business has really taken off with technology. But then I think, look, you know, I saved it for last because it's the best. Office, what's going on with office and disruption on office is all, it's driven by technology. You know, on March 12th of 2020, I, in hindsight, I had COVID at the time, but I was sick at home in bed and I had two calls, conference calls back to back. I was on a conference call at my daughter's school that I was on the board of. And they talked about how the school was not going to open the next day and that they were going to keep taking an eye on it, but that they would be doing, they're going to be launching this Zoom program to be doing different things. And then later on, on our BGO global management call, where we said, again, they're like, okay, we're, office, we're going to have our offices closed tomorrow until further notice, but we're going to try to do meetings on Zoom. Since that was my company, I put, I, found, I was able to, by the way, it was an old fashioned conference call, so there's no video, right? And I was like, hey, Andrew, who's our CEO, I said, what's Zoom? <laughs> right? I'd never heard of Zoom, right? So, but if it weren't for Zoom and other technologies like that, you never could have had this whole secular issue around getting people back into the office. You know, it's technological disruption that has allowed the, the flexibility. Now, I'm old school, so I think it's, I want, I would love everyone in the day, five days, everyone in the office in person five days a week. I'm also, we own a lot of office, so for all those reasons, we'd like that. But, you know, it's just another form of technological disruption, but that's secular. What's going on there with office is secular. I don't know where it's going to settle out, but I think it'll be a long time coming before we see physical occupancy by tenants the way it looked on you know, January of 2020 before the pandemic. So you have all these things, Brandon, that are going on at the same time, right? The financial market, you know, what's going on with the financial market, what's going on, you know, what's going on with geopolitics, what's going on, and then what's going on with, I would say, technological disruption in real estate. And it's all happening at the same time. It's accelerating, right? So these things, one of those alone at, going on at a time is disruptive. All of them going on at the same time. I don't know what the right word is. It's super disruptive, uber disruptive, right? It's just really, and it's, you know, and it's hard to look what, what we all like to do. Yeah, well, look, I mean, it may not be all bad, right? I mean, it may be, you know, there are going to be winners and losers out of all this stuff. And, you know, part of our job is trying to figure out where those winners are going to be. We all, you know, since our company, we got a big Canadian shareholder and we have a big Canadian business, we always, you know, the, the old analogy of skate to where the puck is going actually makes sense now to me. I didn't know what they were talking about. Growing up in Tennessee, we never really talked about ice skating. So now I, now I kind of know what that means. And look, part of me is energized by it. I just think that, you know, a, I mean, trust me, I would rather there not be all the disruption that's going on and all that because we got an 80 plus billion dollar real estate portfolio. And we got to deal with that. On the flip side, it's going to be a great time to be an investor. It's going to be great vintage for the next few years. And so, you know, you have to figure out how to hold everything you got together and then really take advantage of those opportunities. And, you know, if it's too much for you, if it's too much for me, then it's probably, it's probably time to hang up the spurs at that point. Yeah. So or the skates, the world, stay with the analogy. Skates, yeah. it's per preci precisely skates. Yes. We're not in Tennessee anymore. If you look around the world, what are some of the bright spots in your portfolio? Like what's what's working really well? You mentioned cold storage as an asset class, which was a pre-pandemic bet. What else is kind of where are you, where are you continuing to invest or doubling down? 
I'd say by asset classes, and I'll do geographies, I think by asset classes and distribution generally is still going well. So industrial, you know, put cap rates aside for a second because cap rates have moved, but rents are still doing well. Take up and absorption is still good. Companies are still looking for newer product. You know, I, I do think that, you know, our view is that older industrial is becoming obsolete quickly because of technology, but newer industrial is what tenants want. They'll pay a premium for it. Cold storage is a part of that. Housing, it really depends, you know, but generally speaking, most of the world, including here in the U.S., have a, we have a housing shortage, right? And so if you can get the right product in the right markets where there's job growth, that's a, you know, that's a, there's, there's a good market for that. So those are, you know, those are the, I'd say those are the one and a half bright spots. I won't, I won't say that, that housing's as bright a spot right now as, as industrial distribution is. You know, hotels are interesting. Look, I think we, whether we have a recession or not, I don't know. But, you know, hotels are just interesting right now because there's, you know, as different parts of the world have reopened, we've seen a huge rebound in terms of both business travel, but also leisure travel. And so we think hotels, the right hotels, the right markets are interesting. They are very correlated to what's going on in the markets. So if they're going, if we have a deep recession, et cetera, the hotels will get hurt. But we're we're pretty constructive on it in the right markets. Maybe that's a good segue for Asia. Asia is by far the most interesting part of the world right now. And it's very simple. The largest economy in the world, second largest economy in the world, sorry, China, was closed for three years. And they finally reopened at the beginning of this year. And that's great for China. It's actually great for the global economy, but it's actually really great for the rest of Asia. And so Japan and South Korea and Hong Kong, Singapore, Australia are really getting the benefit of that with China reopening. And so, you know, we think that we I kind of talk about things in terms of headwinds and tailwinds. I think the biggest geographic tailwinds in the world right now are in Asia. And I think they're gonna last for a bit. You know, if you look at Japan, we're a big investor in Japan, but if you look at Japan, Japan's on a roll right now. It's doing really, really well. The macro's doing really well. There's no denominator issue there. People are very constructive on real estate. They want more exposure. And then obviously the other part of the world that's also doing really well from macros, the Middle East, candidly anywhere that is producing oil and you know taking advantage of where oil prices are, et cetera, you know, is doing really well right now. So whether you want to invest there or whether, you know, in our case it's more we try to, you know, raise money from there to invest in other parts of the world, you know, that's kind of where the tailwinds are. Yeah. I could ask you broadly about the the headwinds, but l- let's just be specific. You know, y- you do own office. Office has been hit really hard. I mean, where y- you talked a little bit about it being a secular trend, but kind of w- we see these headlines of you know keys being given back. We see these headlines around the debate between you know work from home or return to office. Kind of what's the you know what's your view like you know from a from a capital markets perspective? You've got assets that you know, no longer serve the purpose or may no longer serve the purpose that they were designed to serve. How do owners and managers of these assets kind of reconcile this this disconnect, if you will, or does it just take time? Kind of, how do you think this plays out? I think it's going to take time. I, th- I think it's going to take time. Look, I think, you know, the good news with office is that the leases are usually not short-term. You know, if you look at a place like New York City, where I'm sitting today, you know, the average office lease is 10 years. And so, you know, you have time to sort this out. And, you know, look, tenants can try to give back space and they can try to do other things. But, you know, the good news in the U.S., the good news, bad news in the U.S. is if unless you declare bankruptcy, you're stuck with that lease. Right. So if you declare bankruptcy, all bets are off. But that's a pretty harsh thing to do to get out of a lease. So I think but I think that time is important because, 
you know, usually when you've got an economic downturn or, or a soft market, you know, most of the U.S. economy are service businesses. So service businesses, we have a service business. 75% of our cost structure is compensation. Everything else in total is 25%. One of the biggest line items of everything else is space. So service businesses are usually looking at pulling back on their space needs during a cyclical downturn anyways. At this point, we've got the perfect storm going on of them doing that cyclically, but also this whole secular, what are we going to do? Are we hybrid? Are we in the, what are we, you know, how much space do we need? And so that process for tenants is going to take them a while to get sorted out. And, you know, look, I will say this, I, I, most of the, you know, senior people I talk to out there, you know, not not just real estate, just across the industries and all that, most CEOs actually want their employees back. You know, I think that broadly speaking, they want it, and they, I think they realize in a competitive market, they're going to have to give people some flexibility if the people want flexibility, but most of them want them back. And certainly the bigger the company gets, the more they want them back. But they also realize that, you know, given what's going on from a market perspective, given what's going on from an employee perspective, that that's not something, you know, everyone that's tried to force it really hard has struggled. Now, you know, when the dynamic goes from some software engineering having engineer having five job offers on his, on their table any given day to losing their job, that might change their open-mindedness about going back to the office and, you know, being being back more regularly. And I think that that's also going to take time to get sorted out. So, you know, look, I I think that is, I think if there had to be a true, mar- a complete mark-to-market on office today, like everything got mark-to-market today, there, that that's the numbers you see when you see these numbers of tens of billions of dollars of distress out there. You know, that's assuming that everything's mark-to-market today. Everyone, everything had to get released today. Everything had to get refinanced today. I just think from a practical perspective, that's not what's going to happen. In your experience, have the banks been fairly open to working with the asset management community to work things out or, you know, what's that dynamic like? Yeah, I think generally speaking. Yeah, I think generally speaking. Look, I think, look, we're a big lender, right? 20, 25% of our AUM is, is lending. So we're a big lender. We're a big borrower. I think that if as a lender, I think if you felt like you made a loan to someone who's a decent person that knows what they're doing, which and if you didn't, then that question, you call into question your original underwriting standards. But if you did that, then I think more often than not, like but significantly more often than not, your best bet to maximize your recovery value is to work with that borrower. And I think that's the approach that lenders have been taking. Look, obviously, we're three years into three and a half years in whatever since the pandemic started. When the pandemic started, it was no one's fault. So I think you found we found we as a lender and we found our borrow the people we borrow money from too were very willing to work with people. You know the issue, Brandon, is we're three years into that, and now you know we we kind of everyone kind of worked together because you know let's get through the pandemic and we get to a better time. Well, guess what? We got to a time where it's not better. So now there's for sure there's some fatigue out there. I also think as things are tough, that's what brings out the best and the worst in people. And I think that sometimes a lender is looking and just saying, this, I'm not sure this borrower is the right person who's going to maximize my outcome, et cetera. But again, generally speaking, you know, look, I've in my first 15 years of my career, I basically just focused on distress and bought a lot of distressed assets and loans around the world. And I will tell you, I think what lenders have learned over time is that's a good way to transfer a bunch of money to someone else, you know, sell your loans at a big discount. Sometimes they're forced to do it, regulators, et cetera. I don't know. I'd be surprised if any big regulator, regulatory body forces that on the banks right now, especially given the interest rate environment. But 
stranger things have happened. I for sure means it's a great time to be a lender right now. You know, we have a lending business. I mentioned that earlier. I should have mentioned this when you know we're talking about what some of the best opportunities out there. It's a great time to be a lender right now because a lot of lenders are on the sideline. And if you're a lender with dry powder and no legacy issues, it's a great time to be out there. It's also a great time to be in the secondaries business just because there are a lot of people, you know, when, when things are tough, you can either sell an asset, an asset or you sell a position, right? And sometimes it's easier to sell a position in a fund than to sell a building where someone has to buy that building, go get financing for that building, et cetera, figure out how they're going to do it. You know, a lot of secondaries, I, we, we say that they're kind of pre-financed because, you know, you're buying a fund interest or an interest in some, some GPs with recap. They're already got financing in place. You're just replacing one or more of the investors in it. So there are things that are definitely going on in this kind of market environment, but it's, you know, volumes have been down and I think they're going to continue to grind for a while here. I won't make you try to call a bottom here. So we'll we'll, we'll move on to kind of the final topic <laughs> around around ESG more broadly. You know, you're you've been fairly, you know, BGO's been fairly, you know, foot forward in, you know, your work around ESG. I know that you're kind of a signatory to, you know, a number of different pledges and initiatives across, you know, a wide range of 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 areas around diversity, equity, inclusion. On the environmental front, I know you've made a commitment to to become net zero by 2050 or sooner. You know, given the politicization of this topic and, you know, kind of the current environment, has has anything changed in terms of your your stance on some of those environmental goals or or how are things progressing? Yeah, I think on the environmental, you know, for us, nothing's changed. You know, real estate is responsible brand. You've heard this for 40% of the carbon emissions in the world, you know, 30% through operations, 10% through development. And it's funny, you know, there's obviously a lot of different sides on the argument around environment, sustainability, climate change, is there climate change, et cetera. I've actually never heard anyone say we need more carbon. I've never heard anyone from any political party get up on a thing and say, we need more carbon. More carbon is good, right? It's been, the debate's all been around, well, what causes carbon and is whatever. And, you know, don't we need to have, you know, don't we need to have a transition and do it over time, et cetera. Canada, a lot of which I agree with. So to just focus on the carbon itself, from our perspective, we just think it is good business. You know, it's, there are, Huge number of companies who, you know, look, we interact with, with companies in so many different ways. The, the most basic ways we interact with tenants, right? A huge majority of the tenants we interact with have their own standards for what they're looking for in the buildings they occupy. They want to be in greener buildings. Uh, they, their employees want to be in greener, healthier buildings, not just, you know, not just the greenness, but the, you know, the fitness, if you will, you know, of the building, the light and air, the circulation, et cetera. And then institutional investors are really focused on that too. You know, there are a lot of, and this is obviously driven more by European and Asian investors to date, but it's spreading around the world, including into the Middle East, including into the US, for sure in Canada, you know, where institutional investors are like, look, they want assets which are future-proofed and they want assets that are, you know, going to be assets which are going to be lower on the carbon emission scale. And you can talk about whatever certification you want. There's different measurement tools. So all those things, in, in my mind, as an investor and fiduciary and an asset class, which is fundamentally illiquid, right, because it doesn't trade on a, on, a, on a market, it is our job to make sure that we're investing in assets which are as future-proofed as possible and talk about where the puck is going, where the puck has been going in terms of what tenants, employees, institutional investors are looking for. And then finally, it's regulatory. Look, I mean, you know, Europe is, Europe's been the most aggressive on this from a regulatory perspective, but even here in the U.S., you know, local law 97 in New York, et cetera, it's, you know, I think even if you wanted to ignore 
what's going on from an environmental perspective, sustainability perspective in real estate. I think it's impossible to do. I think we'd be a bad fiduciary for our investors if we ignored it. So on the social and governance, one of the big announcements that you made, you know, I think in the last year or two is to a commitment to achieving gender parity throughout your corporate leadership by 2030. That's, you know, that's a a, a very progressive and and I think appropriate goal, one that I would like to see more firms take. How are you going about achieving that? And kind of what are some of the successes that you've had in kind of the early, early, early stages of, of, of the progression? Yeah, I would say, look, I think that's an important initiative of ours. I would just take a step back. I think that, because if I would just focus on the fiduciary part of this, there are a lot of studies that have been done that just show more diverse teams make better decisions. You know, you, the, whether it's more diverse boards of directors, you know, those companies in the S&P 500 outperform companies that have less diverse boards of directors. But even on the investment team perspective, different perspectives, you know, they've, they're, bunch of analysis and studies that have been done. I think McKinsey and Bain have done some stuff that just show that more diverse teams make better decisions and have better investment performance. So, you know, that's part that's one part of it. The other part of it is if I just think about this kind of holistically, my view is we're investing in real estate. We're investing on the ground in all these different places in which we operate. We can't take the real estate with us. We're part of the community, <laughs> the fabric of the community. And I just feel like if our team looks like and represents the communities in which we're investing, we're going to do a better job of investing there, right? So, you know, the, the, the paradigm for parity thing, that's actually really straightforward. Women are half the population of the world. There's no debate around that. They are half the population of the world. And so to me, having, you know, having a company where half of our employees are women is not meant to be progressive or forward thinking or anything. It's just meant to be math. You know, just reflective of the of the environment of the you know communities in which we're investing and operating, and then and then to go look further. You know, I'd say probably the thing we said that got the most attention was when we when we announced several a couple of years ago that you know at least two thirds of people we hire were going to be women and people of color. First of all, I you know it was viewed as revolutionary. I was I, I was just like I don't know what's revolutionary about this at all. If we lose the U.S. as an example. 50% of the population are women, and 40% of the population are, are self-described minorities. Right? So it's not us deciding, they decide they're a minority. So that's simple. It's just math, right? If you just add it together, that's 70%. So you know, if we're saying two-thirds, and it's not meant to be, it's not a forced thing, it's whatever else, it's become organic, right? So we have hired hundreds of people since we did that. And I think the last number I saw is it's like 73 or 74% you know, or, or women or, or people of color. I think that's awesome because I think it means that we'll have a more diverse team, which will be a better team from the standpoint of making decisions, understanding the markets in which we're investing and operating. And I also think that, you know, it'll it make it more likely that we can keep them, right? You know, we, we use this acronym ARC, excuse two Cs, but attract, retain, cultivate, which is to really to help people grow so we get the ARC, but then also communicate. But, you know, hiring is the easiest part. But then what do you do to retain people? You're more likely to retain people if they're coming into an environment which is more diverse because then they're more likely to find someone that feels like them, looks like them, has shared experiences to them. And so all those, you know, all those things are, you know, in our mind, kind of critical components of having this ecosystem, making this ecosystem work. And look, I think I get asked a lot, like, well, you know, okay, you keep talking about this being good business, you know, it's good business, but you know, you 
you also think, you know, is it important to you personally? I was like, it's important to me personally, but I don't think that this platform is one where I should, even though it's, you know, company that I help run and that I'm a big shareholder in, I don't think it would be good business for us to just be doing a bunch of stuff that I just happen to think was good, the right thing to do from a, you know, from a personal perspective. Fortunately for me, you know, in my view, you know, whether we're talking about the environment, we're talking about diversity, you know, these are just things that just are just better for, they're better for the industry. They're better for us to make us a better investor to make us a better fiduciary. I completely agree. What what advice would you give to fellow CEOs or founders who are, you know, trying to grapple with some of the, you know, the diversity issues that exist, you know, in, in their companies? Is there, you know, you, you talked about it just being the right thing to do as a fiduciary, but how do you go from zero to one? How do you get started? Any advice? Yeah, I think, I think sometimes, you know, people, put so much pressure on themselves. By the way, I think people, whether it's young people and they're early in their career and they're trying to figure it all out and what's my plan to, you know, get to the C-suite or, you know, or, or candidly people that are in C-suites trying to figure out, okay, what do I, I would just say, Brandon, just do one thing, take one step, whether it's how you're thinking about sustainability or, you know, you're thinking about a more diverse team, you don't have to exactly figure out, you know, you don't have to be as but revolutionary as I was with the two thirds thing, you know, the next person we hire is going to be a woman. The next person we hire is going to be a person with a different background or, you know, or, you know, a person of color. Take one step, see how it goes. It's going to take time. You know, you, one of the risks with all these things is just how's your organization going to respond to it. We've been overwhelmed by how our organization responded to both what we're trying to do from the standpoint of sustainability and what we're trying to do with diversity. It's important to them. And so, you know, an edict or a statement by me or John or Amy is fine, but it's really not going to go anywhere unless it's important to the team. But I think that's what I would say, Brandon. Look, I think everyone, the the pressure they're putting on themselves is understandable because it's important, but you don't have to have it all figured out. You don't have, you know, chapter and verse. I think just taking the first step will go a long way. And then you're going to, I think what they're going to find is they take that first step and they bring in someone that's maybe a little bit different than maybe the the majority of the people they have on their team, it's going to feed upon itself. And, you know, they'll look back in five years and they'll have a, a greener portfolio or they'll have a more diverse team and they'll be a better investor for it. I love that. Well, on that note, Sonny, I want to thank you for spending some time with me today. I've really enjoyed our conversation and the global tour of commercial real estate that we've been on over the last hour. And, you know, there'll be a full transcript and recording of this available for for people who want to listen in the show notes. But thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you, Brandon, for the opportunity. I'm sorry if I rambled on there for a while here and there, but, you know, been doing this for a long time. And I would just say, look, I think it's just a really interesting time now. And I candidly think it's a really interesting time for your business right now, because I think as people are thinking about, you know, what what they want to do to be more efficient and how they want to connect with their investors better, you you guys sit at the nexus point of that, which is why we're, a, you know, a very happy and growing customer of yours. Thank you. We appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of The Distribution by Juniper Square. If you liked today's podcast, please share it with a colleague or a friend. And don't forget to subscribe and rate The Distribution on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can connect with me on LinkedIn by going to www.linkedin.com forward slash IN forward slash B Sedloff. Or you can find me on Twitter at B Sedloff. 
You can also find a video recording of this conversation on demand at junipersquare.com forward slash the dash distribution. Until next time. 